0: Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is film composer and educator, Chris Boardman. First of all, radio is changing, and it's changing big time. There's something new on the horizon, and it's called virtual radio. And it's not necessarily something that you're going to notice immediately, but behind the scenes, there's a lot going on. Essentially, what radio stations are trying to do is eliminate the local studio, so they're putting a lot on the cloud. And this even means local programming, so things like listener calls and local interviews and even the library of advertising and music that they're using will all go into one place. Now, what this does, it reduces the engineering and the equipment costs. But what also happens is things get even a little more homogenized. Yeah, we didn't think that could happen, huh? But it looks like we're heading the way of less and less local programming and specific local programming and more and more centrally located network programming. That being said, there's also another change coming to radio. And that is, most radio stations are going to begin to record video of the radio broadcasts. So in other words, you'll be able to see the radio personality, whether that's good or bad, I'm not sure. But it definitely works for network shows. Uh, Lots of sports shows do this, do simulcasts. But I think you're going to see it more and more, even on a local level. One of the big problems with this, of course, is it's easy enough to do radio. It's easy enough to do audio. The real hard part is the editing, but apparently there is some smart technology that's driving switching and driving all of the elements that are traditionally very difficult to do in video. So we'll see how that works. But one thing that's happening for sure is the line is beginning to blur between TV and radio. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at com. Check out my Hitmakers Club for access to the Private Mixers Facebook group, monthly deconstructed hits, mixing workshop, and Q&A webinars. For a short time, access to my core training module bonus. Go to HitmakersClub.com to learn more. Now, we all have a lot of gear. Some of us have more gear than others. And that begs the question, do you have insurance for your gear? Many of us think, well, wait a second, I have homeowner's or renter's insurance and doesn't that cover it? Well, not necessarily, just like your car insurance may not cover it if you're going out to a gig with your gear. So for instance, what ends up happening is your homeowner's or renter's insurance generally won't cover anything that's outside of the home, first of all. But Even if you have a home studio, for instance, and something occurs within that studio, if you're making money with it, or if the insurance company deems that it's some sort of a business, guess what? They're not going to pay on it. And the same thing happens with your car insurance. If you're out on a gig and you're making money from it, then it's likely that the insurance company will not pay on any claims. So that being said... There are other problems as well. Even if they do decide to pay, are they going to pay the true replacement value of your gear? So for instance, let's say you have a guitar that you bought in oh 1975 and this guitar in fact cost you 350 bucks back then, but is now worth 3500. Well, do you think the insurance company is going to pay you 3500 Probably not because the insurance agent is not sophisticated in these things. Same with computer gear, for instance. If you have a computer that's loaded up with $5,000 worth of plugins, for instance, chances are that the insurance company will only pay in the value of that computer. So that's why it's really important that you get dedicated equipment insurance. And that being said, it's not as expensive as you might think it's only about $80 per thousand dollars of gear that you're insuring. So it's not that bad. The other thing you might consider if you're out gigging, or even if you own a home studio where you're bringing in clients all the time, you might want a public liability insurance policy that protects against any lawsuits in case someone trips or gets electrocuted, or any of those bad things happen, or if... A musician that you hire runs into a problem and decides to sue, then you'll find that this public liability, this umbrella insurance policy, is going to protect you. So these are all things to think about when it comes to insurance. We don't like to think about these things, but it's really important that you have it. My guest this week is film composer Chris Boardman, who was one of my first guests when I started the podcast four years ago. He was originally on episode number 11. Acknowledged for his work in film, television, records, and academia. Chris is a six-time Emmy Award winner with 13 Emmy nominations and has also been nominated for an Oscar. He has multiple platinum records and has twice been nominated for Mentor of the Year by the University of Miami Graduate School. In this interview, we talked about the evolution of the film scoring business as well as his new master's level film scoring course. We spoke via Skype from his home in Nashville. It was four years ago when we did the first interview interview. I think you were episode number 13. I'm sure things have changed in the film composition business since then. Maybe not. Has the process changed at all?
1: Um, well, all it's it, this is a pretty hot topic at the moment. You know, in that period of time, the culture and the business has changed. And also technology has changed. So it's, it's kind of reminiscent of the onset of MySpace, where in the '90s we had record companies trying to uh, limit the number of releases to maximize profits and thereby restrict, you know, restrict choice. And it, and when, as you probably recall, when My, MySpace took off, all of a sudden there were three million fan pages. So it was a place for, for um, all, you know, all the garage bands of the world to aggregate to show their wares. Uh, you know, there's obviously not that many that were really great, but they were out there. In today's world, what I see is a lot of people enamored and, and for various reasons, for business reasons, for personal reasons, for passion reasons, whatever, to want to write music for media. And the tools have never been cheaper. So it's, there's a flood of people who want to do this kind of work. Are they any good? Well, some, you know, probably the same percentages as before. Um, The basic process of writing music for film hasn't changed substantially other than what the technology and uh, digital audio workstations allow. So, so it's, that part is kind of stabilized too, but we have this influx of people who want to do this job at this. And the curious thing is Hollywood continues to contract and under serious threat by Amazon and Netflix. So it kind of it's kind of creating this, this environment where there's m- more projects to score, less of a budget to, to, uh, uh, make make a living at it or at least what we expected to be paid 20 years ago. <laughs> um, and we got more people who want to do it. So it, it kind of falls in line with my attitude then, which is the people who really know what they will are doing will rise above. They'll stand out. But it's become more and more a volume business than a, um, a, an exclusive business, if that makes any sense.
0: So volume meaning that you have to do more projects in order to make a living than before, right?
1: Correct. Correct. You know, so what I have focused on in, in my teaching is giving people a smattering of all the job descriptions so that they can do lower-cost projects and keep more money in their pocket and be able to work across borders because it's no longer a domestic market only being shipped out across the world. We have people making you know, a, more of a local-based business, if anything, or a niche-based business.
0: I have a good friend that works for NASA. He's a rocket scientist, but he started out his career as a punk bass player and never gave up his love for music. But as it turns out, he posted something online that was found by Bollywood. <laughs> and now he does all this Bollywood scoring on the side because they just love what he does, which is the perfect example of what you're just talking about.
1: Yeah, I think we'll see more and more of that. You know, the, the in the MySpace era, you know, my, I, when I really discovered when we met how, how pervasive this change uh, that we were experiencing would be, I, I tried to understand what would be the determining factor? What would be the value proposition that would drive people to one piece of music or to a different, you know, whatever it was, you know, it's because all the rules were changing. And that was my, my Lord, that was 10, 12, 14 years ago. I think that that we're with with the uh, um, the Parkland shooting and the teens who are who are are organizing to change their world uh, is is we're right right today. I mean, my, my opinions are changing because the world is changing. We're saying we need to do something about the world. Art is part of that world, and and so it's it's all it's all going. To, going to shift and it seems like the the, the value proposition for film scoring music etc is going to be what is the authentic experience that the music creates because I, I just just 20 minutes ago read an article about how uh, generation Z is bored looking at their cell phone they're looking for something else <laughs> So, so it, just, it, it kind of strikes me as saying that, well, there has to be real value to be able to connect, and we're going to, by some seems to be, that the potential exists for new filters to emerge that, that will uh, act in the way that it did in the 20th century to be able to identify those performers, those filmmakers, those film composers, that can connect people by, by the use of their art uh, uh, in ways that we haven't necessarily imagined yet but fulfill that need for an authentic connection between human beings.
0: What's the difference between scoring for a movie and scoring for a television show and or scoring for a video game?
1: Oh, well... Anything that's in a linear, what you described is two examples of a linear process as opposed to an adaptive music process. Uh, a linear process means that somebody else is in, uh, in control of the timeline. And then the composer has to fit their music to fit that timeline. And that's the way that music has been used in films since 1928. Uh, And we, you know, uh, Jerry Goldsmith was fond of saying he's not an artist. He's a craftsman Mm. to be. He has to craft his music to fit that particular uh, timeline in a video game. It's 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 called adaptive music where the user is in control of the timeline. So the music has to be created in layers that are triggered based on the user's gameplay. To signify, to represent where they happen to be in the game process. So it's, a, it's kind of apples and oranges. The, the, the wild thing is that the 18th century uh, tonal music conventions remain the same. It's just a different format in terms of how do you organize that information.
0: So you're saying it's all organization then?
1: Well, it's the tools, it's organization, but uh, uh, it's different. But uh, what I'm trying to say is that the the tools remain the same. I mean, harmony, harmonic progressions, melody, uh, uh, counterpoint, rhythmic variation, all of those, those elements that were manipulated by the composers of orchestral music through the last 300 years remain the same. They're just applied differently in a layered, stacked kind of uh, of. of process
0: well how about composition for virtual reality since your reality is 360 degrees does that influence how the music is composed
1: well I've studied it I've never done it myself but it's interesting I looked at it from a recording point of view and they have what they're what's called emitters so so in a traditional music sense we're dealing with stereo and and panning in the 360 degree environment, as I understand it to be, there are emitters that will be triggered based on where you're looking or where you happen to be in that 360 degree environment. So it changes, changes the process in that regard in that you're recording all mono instead of trying to create this pleasant stereo blend, if you will, as far as the music being, uh, um, uh, composed, you know, it's, it's a funny thing. We have as, as a culture been conditioned to respond to different sounds in different ways. Kind of goes back to fight or flight. You know, if you're, if a loud noise will startle you and do I go investigate it? Do I run away from it? Do I stand my ground? That kind of moves. That's part of the human experience. Uh, you know, In the film music, it began in uh, Berlioz with 37, I believe, introduced the concept of leitmotif, which means musical figures attached to characters and developed as a part of a characterization. That's what we've all been conditioned to respond to. Low sounds is ominous. You know, major seventh chords and bells and celestas, is kind of frothy and, you know, pick your adjective. I don't believe at this point that those conventions will go away regardless of the format. So from a compositional point of view, you're adapting those compositional techniques to the different format, the different environment, because it's the emotional response of the audience is culturally driven and you can't get away from that. People will be confused as opposed to knowing what what they're supposed to feel.
0: Okay, so if that's culturally driven, would that vary then in different cultures? What our triggers are in Western society might be different in Cambodia or Japan, or, you know, you pick the place. Is that true, or is it mostly universal?
1: I would have to think that it's universal, but the but the individual definitions, if you will, the identities would be different. And, and it's, it's an interesting phenomenon how register plays a lot, a huge factor in, in that kind of recognition, recognition of an emotion or a trigger of an emotional response. So if you're in Bali or you're in Bollywood or you're in Africa, you know, a low drum is going to probably mean the same as opposed to some high pitched sound but the, the, the actual harmonic and melodic content and rhythmic content could change to fit that particular culture.
0: Okay, that makes sense. There are so many people that want to get into film composition, and you weren't an into them all day long in school, obviously. But that being said, I find that <laughs> I'm approached so much, especially when I travel and I go to a college in a different country, There are theory instructors. There are people that come out of the woodwork and basically say, can you help me get a job as a film composer in Hollywood? Of course, I know nothing about it, but that brings the question then, what is the background that is required for someone to actually be successful in the business?
1: Well, my take on that is, and based on my experience, uh, painful personal experience, mind you, is that musicians occupy one uh, mindset and is focused through sound and, and their own emotions or whatever, whatever is triggering that, that response. And that's their orientation. It's about the music. The single most important thing that, you, that anyone can use to further a, fil- a film composition career is to understand story and realize that music is just one of several departments that are employed to make a visual project of some sort. And every, everybody in the filmmaking process, the director, the producer, the screenwriter, the, the set design, the gaffer, the grip, the special effects, they are all there in service of making, of realizing the story that the director is trying to tell and music just operates one vertical in that production hierarchy. What I was uh, trying to say is that musicians tend to look at everything from a musical perspective as opposed to saying, I'm a filmmaker adding music to this project. And and, and that I feel I, it takes a, a lot of discipline and, and why there's so few people who actually succeed it's is, is difficult to make that transition, to you know, to, to uh, uh, jump the shark, so to speak, to say I'm I'm no longer just a musician, I am a filmmaker using music to tell a story, and that, that's if you can get that together, then you understand what it means to be a film composer.
0: You know, it's funny you should mention that when I first moved to Los Angeles, I got a couple of gigs composing for some small indie films. I actually wasn't trying to get them. I just kind of fell into it, believe it or not. And one of the things I found was that I did what I thought was these great scores and the director would come in and change everything around. And I was so upset about it. And it took a a while to really realize, well, wait a second, this has nothing to do with my music. This has everything to do with what the director wants. But it's a different mindset to think that way.
1: Absolutely it is. Yeah, and it's 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 what uh, I've it's kind of been my mission to, to express that, that opinion that it is a different mindset and what that means and how to communicate. Cause it, listen, at the end of the day, a director is thinking about a zillion things at once on a film set. They've got people asking them questions incessantly 24 hours a day, you know? So what most musicians fail to uh, recognize and accept is that a director will be talking a different language and they talk the language of story. So as a musician, I found it much more successful to talk in in terms of story characterization, uh, sets, lighting, what the plot is, all of those different story elements as a way of creating a common ground where, where the musician can then interpret the, the vision of the director to get a suitable result. If you don't have a common language, if you say, well, I think that should be a, a B flat seven, sharp five instead of a, 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 a flat five chord. And, and the director will look at you like they're, you're nuts. They have, they will have no idea what you're talking about. However, if you were to say, say wrap that particular question around how it relates to and involves and affects a character, the director will be all over that. And now you have a common language that you can communicate. Otherwise it's, you're speaking two different languages, and you know maybe you're lucky enough to to hit a home run by the way you you emotionally interpret a scene, but it's very difficult to have a conversation with a filmmaker talking solely in musical terms. you know the The, the virtue of using an English horn versus an oboe will be completely lost on a director.
0: Yeah, I get it.
1: Concept. But, yeah, it's, but, but the, the, the converse is true as well. If you understand what motivates that character and how it relates to the story, you're, you're, you're golden. And now you, now you can get to work and get something done.
0: Okay, you've been f- teaching film composition for a while now. What is it, five years? Uh, this will be my sixth year, yes. Sixth year, okay. I guess that begs the question then, how do you teach someone film composition?
1: Well, people do it in different ways. Um, based on my experience in the film business, I make a point to have everything technical and informational to be available to the student outside of class. So to that, to that end, I've built websites that, that have curated as well as original content that the student can then refer to on their own time. Our class time is spent speaking in the language of story, and, and I don't talk about music at all. We'll listen, review, critique, and express ideas based on how does that musical idea relate to the character, and what is it, how is it helping the story. So I found that to be very successful in my experience, because it helps, helps uh, uh, students you know, uh, cross that divide to start thinking about, about the music that they write in relationship to how it affects the story, as opposed to, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm so emotional about this, this melody. Isn't it great? You know, that's, that's really irrelevant. If it's fitting the story, if it's getting the emotion of the story across, then who am I to say what genre of music is appropriate or not? that's a personal taste issue. But if you can apply that, that uh, a musical genre in a way that fulfills the needs of the story, then, then you're on the nose as opposed to trying to force feed your emotional idea into it. It comes back to that notion of, of craft versus art. You know?
0: Well, I think everything in the entertainment business is a combination of both absolutely in certain cases it skews more one way than the other but that being said if it's done well there's that combination that fine line that you know you do have both i think
1: yeah well of course i mean you know the whole one thing i wanted to say about that um, is that i encourage my students
0: to learn
1: how to become schizophrenic and be both a participant participant in the creative process as well as being an objective observer of their work. And you need to have both to be really great. It can't be one or the other.
0: Since budgets are going down and, and they're fairly low, especially on certain types of projects, that means that the film composer is responsible for a lot. And one of the things that also means is where once upon a time you could rely on great engineers for recording and mixing a lot of it now is on the shoulders of the film composer. So that being said, is there anything special that the film composer should know when it comes to that?
1: Well, they should understand about acoustics and about sound and about register. Uh, so, so, you know, it's, it's kind of all the above all the time. And, and I encourage everybody to listen to as many different styles of music, and to learn how to be in uh, to analyze different kinds of music, so that your that exposure will broaden your palate, and hopefully you will absorb from uh, uh, audio technical point of view how things are supposed to sound, and then it becomes the ch- the chore. For the, you know, the lone ranger like myself to figure, well, how do I make, how do I get my stuff to sound like that? As opposed to saying, being intimidated by the Oh, I don't know anything about this. I'll, I'll have to go hire somebody to fix it for me because I just don't know. So it's, it's kind of like a, from a, from all the above, all the time and in slow increments to to improve your craft across the board. Now that being said, the standouts are the guys who kind of gravitate towards that. I have a, a, a former student. His name's Stephen Schwartz. He goes by the name Stephen. He's he's uh, a wonderful composer. He's not interested in film per se, but he's an amazing instrumentalist, programmer, songwriter, performer, and. And he's figured out how to do it all himself. And he's well over a hundred million views on YouTube at this point. Wow. So, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of like, you know, there are people who will pop out and then there are other people like myself, who just kind of plod through it and, and improve your craft. So, you know, it's luck of the draw, I guess. But, but I guess if I were to offer any advice or suggestions to the, the, Uh, people wanting a a career as a film composer—you know—keep your ears open and don't be intimidated by what you don't know. Mm, You know, the hardest thing to do is—the hardest thing to do is to identify what the problem is. You know, focus your attention there rather than
0: saying, "Oh, I don't know what people are going to think about me." You know,
1: focus. You know, learn how to solve your own problems, and then your craft and the quality of your work will improve.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I think. (laughs) Most people that we know that are successful have done that. Certainly for me,
1: yeah, without without exception, because they're the ones who who are committed to for the long haul. You know, all of these YouTube or uh, MySpace, uh, you know, as an example, entry level film composers, they'll get tired of it and they'll move on because it's too hard.
0: So that being said, there are so many musicians, artists that want to get into film composition. What is the thing or things that most of them don't know?
1: Well, first and foremost is that it's a collaborative business. It's not, here's my track. Do you like it or do you not? You know, from a negotiating standpoint, that puts you in a yes, no decision. You know, it took me a long time to realize that when I'm working with another creative person, uh, especially outside of my genre, I have to be able to communicate with them and I have uh, to be able to be effective. And I have to be able to be, learn how not to get defensive if they don't like something of mine and to be able to work with people effectively. If, you know, collaborative skills are, are, have gotten hammered pretty hard by the device centric world we live in today. If you want to work in film as a film composer, know how to say hello to somebody and look them right in the eye and be able to understand what they're trying to say. You know, I mean, my my father years ago he used to he told me he says people work with people they they know. Yeah, and, and I think that that's still true today because because as, as strangers are hard, hard. You know, listen, this is a very intimate process to write the best music, to make the best movie, to make the engineer the best record. You know, requires uh, uh, an involvement that is very intimate by the individual. So people are going to gravitate towards people they like, people that they can communicate with, uh, people who who understand what they're trying to say. So this this notion of collaborative skills is really, really high on the list. Because the moment that, that you say, I'm Johnny film composer, and I want to score your film... In that instance, you're competing with John Williams, so so you're it's assumed that your skill level will be at, at a professional level. So, so what is the differentiator? Well, not everybody can afford John Williams, but the, the but the, the uh, if you can connect with this a filmmaker and make them feel comfortable so that they trust you. They're going to be more likely to want to work with you, and that's that's sorely missed by so many people I mean. Mm. That that's not. Do you like my music? Do you not like my music? Well, I think my music would be great for movies. Well, how in the world does that relate to the story I'm trying to tell? Yeah, it doesn't. It, does, it doesn't really mean anything. So, so what they don't know is that it's a collaborative business that we're all on equal footing, comp- vying for the same jobs. And so you need to find a a way to be able to connect with the, the people you want to work with in a way that allows them to feel comfortable in that intimate, collaborative environment.
0: Okay, let's go to another place for a second. Let's talk about music education on a university level. And you've been intimately involved for six years. And probably by the time this airs, you will have moved on to your own educational outlet. But let's talk about the college experience for just a little bit, because it's really changing in the fact that everything is so expensive, and now we're beginning to get a pushback from students who are saying, or potential students who are saying, wow, this is way too expensive considering what I get for it. How do you think that's going to change university executive thinking in the future?
1: Uh, as regards to academia in general or or in music?
0: Well, let's just go general.
1: Well, in general, I think academia is in serious, serious trouble. And it's not that they, it's a combination of people who want to change versus people who, who are terrified and fearful of change and the nature of the institution that slows down the process. So on the one hand, you've got all this technology that, that's pushing forward. You have a new generation of, of students who never experienced life without a smartphone, trying to be educated by a bunch of older than them people, most of which in the, in the academic world have never worked on the outside as, as professionals who are only regurgitating what they were taught when they were young. So it becomes a, kind of like a, this incestuous bubble. And it's, it's, the students are revolting because it's no longer relevant. The approach is, is losing relevance to their lives. They're taught a thing, this is the way the world works, or this is what I think is important with the subtext of this is what I learned in a book, or this is what I was taught. And, you know, it's, it's libraries. Think about libraries. When was the last time you walked into a library? <laughs> you know,
0: the,
1: yeah. We all have, we have the entire world full of information at our fingertips. And that's, that's completely changed the culture, our culture as human beings, but it's also putting extraordinary pressure on, on academia to respond you combine that pressure with people who are, who are looking to preserve their jobs. And, and then and invariably, it seems from my research that people who are circling the wagon and they're saying, well, we're just going to hunker down and, and, and try to weather the storm, you know, but the students are saying, many students are saying to me, says I'd love to go to grad school, but it's too expensive. Yeah. So there's this kind of a, there's kind of a mismatch between the administrative side of it which which is saying okay we have to preserve the status quo to stay in business and then their customer base pushing off in a different direction I was looking at an academic job not too long ago um, a potential a- academic job and part I ran across a strategic planning report saying what is the status of colleges and, and that really piqued my interest. So I, I read through this document, and I got to the point where it got to the finances. The elite schools that are 100% endowed will have no pressure or feel no pressure from this coming disruption. There is a significant number of schools that are reliant upon tuition revenue to stay in business who will go bankrupt. And then there's all the, the rest are all in the middle somewhere. And what they discovered was their, their, these schools were making bets on their future by investing in real estate and new buildings. And this, at the same time discounting tuition to attract students. So you, you have an industry, which is, is, increasing their debt load while reducing their revenue. Hmm. And and that is not a prescription for successful business. So I can't give you any kind of indication as to what the future will look like other than to say that there's an enormous gap in the marketplace where you have the institutions and the, the elite schools who will do what they do. You have people suffering on the bottom end who have no education. And then you have this big, big hole in the middle where people are looking for the information, they're looking for the edu- education, and they can no longer rely upon, oh, you have to go to you know the, the path to the upward mobility is to go to college that may or may not apply. So, so we have young people who are looking for the, the avenue that suits them best to, you know, to f- fulfill their needs. One of the, what I've decided that, that for myself personally that I can do is to take the courses that I developed in academia and for a fraction of the cost, be able to make those available to people who want that kind of education, you know, and and I'm, we'll see how that ends up. You know, what I, one of the things I did learn from my educational experience is that that this notion that education is a tube sock is a myth. Everyone learns differently, and so the, the breaking apart of academia could very well be, be segmenting into different styles of learning that that are uh, uh, more specific to somebody's learning preferences or abilities as opposed to f- funneling everybody through a, a tube sock kind of system.
0: You know, what's interesting about that, you should say that I have some good friends who the, their daughter was applying to colleges and that in itself was an ordeal and it was different when we went to school or we we're of that age where it was fairly easy, where you yourself, the student filled out the submission form and did it, the application. And now it's definitely a parent-child proposition that everybody has to do this. It's an ordeal. That being said, she got into her favorite college, which is Colorado College. And the interesting thing was they have sequential learning. So you take a class and you take that one class only and you take it for whatever it is, eight weeks, 12 weeks, and then you're finished with that forever. And then you go on to the next one, which makes so much sense when you think about it because you know you're only concentrate on that one thing for that period of time. It's a, one of those head smack things where you go, well, why doesn't everybody do this? It makes a lot more sense. The military does it and they're very successful in getting their people up to speed to do whatever they have to do but yet academia is still in this mode where you know it's what hundreds of years old
1: yeah it's 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 a structure that is sacrosanct and and the structure is what needs to be broken apart it's you know i, I from the beginning of my experience in academia i was constantly reminded of the seminal book the innovator's dilemma and uh, for those who are not aware of this book, it's basically saying a status quo business, and I you know people have different takeaways of this. But my takeaway of this is if you focus on a small group of people or you, and you ignore a bunch of other people, then then the culture will change to to accommodate the needs of the the majority that is no longer part of that interview. And will disrupt uh, the the status quo. In, this is a broad generalization of the book, which I highly recommend. But but the, the, what was so eloquently stated in that book was the fact that even if a status quo business, let's say, or industry could see the change coming, their corporate culture would not be able to make that transition. And this is why I am I, firmly of the belief that academia is really in trouble. You know, we got people on the inside who want to do change. They want to want to, you know, most teachers want to help students. That's why they've become teachers. Uh, but it's just the institutional nature of the industry that prevents them from making those changes, even if they want to. So, you know, in the last couple of weeks, my attitude has shifted dramatically in saying that, okay, we've we've kind of been in the dark ages for the last 15, 20 years, as as technology is is grown at this pace. Now we're on the edge of even perhaps having another enlightenment, where everything's going to change, and it's and it's a little too soon to tell exactly what that will look like, but it, I just have this this overriding sense that we're at the dawn of something. Mm, Now I would love to be 20 years old to be at the the beginning of this ride, but I I won't have that opportunity. So I, I, I tend to tell my students, this is an incredibly exciting period of time to be alive because it's all going to be new and you get to make up the rules and you get to decide for yourselves what you want this to be. Crazy times.
0: Okay. Speaking of new, do you want to talk about your new course?
1: Yeah. I would be happy to. Thank you for asking. Um, Well, you know, I spent, I had a long career as a professional composer, arranger, musician. And I came to academia as a moral, to pay a moral debt to my mentor and the people who helped me along the way. And not being a trained academic or not being a part of that club all of my life, I came to academia with a much different mindset. And I was all full of uh, uh, the Khan Academy and and all the rest of that uh, saying, well, let's go, you know, let's go boil the ocean and do something different. And for that reason, uh, I developed a hybrid uh, teaching process which I described earlier in the sense that that information is curated so that the pertinent information is in one place on a dedicated website for that class, as opposed to saying go find the answer to to XYZ and then everybody comes back with a different Google search result. Um, This enables a a hybrid or discussion-based class period. And in the case of the film scoring class, You know, we talk about film, we talk about the story, we talk about the relationship between all the different parties, creating a common language, knowing who you're working with um, uh, and how they relate to what you do so that you can walk into a meeting and understand what everybody's role is. That was the basis of the class. So I've spent the last six years teaching and refining this process. And now that I've decided to leave academia, I've taken that same course that has worked very, very well uh, and reconfigured it in a online uh, format with a series of videos uh, of of the curated content is also available as part of this package. And what I've learned about distance learning is that it's an education in general is what students, crave and why my classes seem to always fill up is personalized tension, meaning that you have some, an expert who is addressing your specific issues. And in that group setting is it, there's an enormous amount of peer learning that goes on between each student and, or the similarities and problems that need to be addressed for that reason. Uh, this online film scoring class is going to have this, uh, baked into the process a, a series of webinars for that classroom experience for, uh, for the people who, who take the course. So that they not only do they get all of the background information, knowledge, and context, uh, and the personalized instruction in the form of videos, but they also get personalized feedback. And, and I'm, I purposely decided to go that direction because a, you know, a, a talking head is really ineffective in an educational format. I mean, it's, it's astonishing to think that MOOCs, which were all the rage when they first started teaching, uh, had a less than 10% completion rate and a less than 10% pass rate.
0: Wow. I had so no idea.
1: It enabled... Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. So you get a lot of people who sign up and then they lose interest. Well, why do they lose interest? Because nobody's paying attention to them. They're left to their own devices. Now, here's the thing. It's like when this whole tube sock uh, educational approach. You know, the, the is it kind of reminiscent of of Hollywood thinking the computer was a new screen for them to distribute their content in the early 90s. This tube sock approach and what MOOCs ended up being is just a, a uh, uh, an extension of what they did in the classroom, thinking that it was good enough. Well, the culture has moved on, the t- culture has changed, the the uh, youth of today have different needs, they have different wants, they have, uh, uh, their their world is completely different. So that ex- extending what has gone on in the classroom no longer fits. So for that reason, uh, I realized that if I was going to do this and have an impact, it would be I'd have to be personally involved. So not only are they paying for the information, the curated information, they're paying for time with me.
0: What's the name of it?
1: It's called Chris Boardman Masterclasses, Film Scoring Masterclass. There is a pre-launch sign-up page on my website, which is com. And there's no, no, at this moment, there's no obligation. I'm just trying to to gauge interest uh, and, and I'll be rolling out uh, uh, the launch plans here once the semester is over. Okay. And now I'm sure that that, I'm sure that doesn't necessarily relate to this uh, conversation, but there is a masterclass tab on my website where they can find it.
0: Last question, Chris. And this is something I didn't get a chance to ask you the first time around. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you've learned along the way or maybe someone imparted to you?
1: Be honest, because even though we're spread out across the globe, this is a very small community of people. And if you are not... Straight ahead. If you're not ethical, if you don't stand behind your words, if you are not honest in your dealings, it will come back to bite you in the butt. And now, in the in the world we live in now, with trolls and bots, you can get destroyed in a matter of seconds. So, so you know, as painful as it might be, be straight ahead. Be honest. Be accountable for your actions and you will find your way because once you lose your reputation, you're done. And that begs all sorts of other all sorts of other questions about saying yes to something, even if you're not qualified because you're so desperate to get ahead and all the rest of that. You know, we, you can go down a whole rabbit hole about that, but we need not do that here. But yeah, just be straight ahead, be honest, be a real person and realize that you're dealing with people and, and you know, the golden rule and all of that sort of thing. You may not get every gig. You may not reach the heights of, of fame and fortune and notoriety that you wish, but that part of it's out of your control.
0: You can find out a lot more about Chris by going to chrisboardmanmusic.com. That's Chris, C-H-R-I-S, Boardman, B-O-A-R-D-M-A-N, Music. Dot com. It's all one word, chrisboardmanmusic.com. To find out more about his masterclass in film scoring, go to cbmg.mykajabi.com, and you can find that link in the show notes of the podcast. Thanks for listening and being my Inner Circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and BobbyOinnercircle.com. you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.